Remember, the key to sales success is to provide the right info at the right time in the right way. Those who do will unlock the opportunity for your businesses to grow. But if you screen your couples too much, you may prevent unidentified but still ideal clients from getting into your inbox or all the way to contract. In this week's episode of Own Your Business, I talk about four reasons couples struggle to book the right vendors, three areas to focus on if you want to book more clients at higher prices, 14 ways you're making it hard for couples to make progress in the buyer's journey, and eight tactics you can use if you want to make it easier to say yes to your services. Own Your Business is a podcast for event professionals who want to grow with proven approaches. I'm Sam Jacobson, a sales, pricing, and copywriting expert in the wedding industry. Throughout my career, I've booked hundreds of events for millions in revenue. I've also led teams in premium and luxury markets. Now I coach people like you with my company, ID Action Consulting. It's not easy to run a business, especially if it's a business of one, because we aren't born knowing everything. Like you, I had experts who showed me the way when I was starting out and when I was ready to level up. I hope this podcast gives you the confidence to own your business. Four years ago, Katie and I were in the midst of planning our wedding. I had finally proposed the summer before after three years of dating. Now, why do I say finally? Because I knew, well, we both knew, the first time we talked to each other that we were going to spend the rest of our lives together. I kid you not. So the next few minutes are going to be a little sad, a little schmoopy, but they're filled with a really interesting story. I was 36 years old and wrapping up the absolute worst year of my life. Three things had happened. My mom died after a four-month battle with a super aggressive cancer. She fell down one day in April, and in early September, she was no longer with us. It was terrible. But that was just part of it. A year earlier, my wife of six years and I decided it was better for our five-year-old daughter and ourselves to have a family with two separate households, which is basically a nice way of saying we decided to get a divorce. I was devastated, just destroyed. It was my biggest fear growing up in a family that had divorced parents. I did not want that for my own kids. And at the time, I couldn't think of any worse thing. And I also decided it was time to leave my job at the resort that I've been working at since graduating college over a dozen years earlier. I'd been there for a while. I'd spent my 20s and my mid-30s. It was time for me to move on. Mom died. Marriage died. My interest in the place that I was working at died. I mean, it was sad. And I was under a ton of stress. So much so once that I actually checked myself into the ER because I had chest pains. Now, that's a funny, not funny story. I'm going to tell that a different time, but let's just say that I left with a clean bill of health. And what the doctor told me is that I had esophageal spasms, which I didn't even know were a real thing, but apparently they're caused by contractions between my stomach and my throat somewhere in there. And it really felt like somebody was just squeezing my chest, squeezing my heart, the innards of my upper body. Now, the doctor said this was caused by acid reflux, too much stress. My therapist, she said it was because of a broken heart. So there I was, I was living in this little cabin in the woods with my four cats. I know, crazy cat lady, it was crazy cat Sam. I mean, I had two cats that were my own, but I also had two cats that were my mom's that I had promised to take care of when she died. I also had my two dogs, and then I also had, of course, my five-year-old daughter, who I was desperately trying to be there for because she was working through how her own world was getting rocked. I mean, it was miserable. Now, I've been living on this tiny island without any bridges or stoplights and just 5,000 people for over a dozen years. It was time for me to move on to the next chapter in life. 
I'd started as a waiter at that resort back in 2001. And then I moved into management a couple years later. I got promoted every year for about a half a decade before finally settling into a position as a lodging director and event sales manager for the property. I'd led the team to massive increases in revenue and profits during the Great Recession. I 4 x the event business over that time period through the sales that work that I did with the team. And I created enough SOPs in the three departments that I managed as lodging director for somebody else to come in and take over. I had created a position that was ready to be replaced. And it was a time for a fresh start for me. So after working out the exit plan with my boss at the resort, he told me how grateful he was and how much the company appreciated the leadership that I had given them over the last dozen years. Then he said something to me that I'll never forget. It was one of those life-changing moments that happens once in a decade, a sliding doors moment. Here's what he said. He said, why don't you go to that fancy wedding conference you like so much and see if you can find another job? We're happy to pay for you to go. It's the least we can do. Now, all this happened on a Monday. And Engage, the conference that he was talking about, it started five or six days later on a Sunday. So I emailed Catherine Rebecca to see if I could get in. They told me, sure, but I wouldn't have a name in the registration book and I would have to find a room because the property was sold out. But yeah, I could attend if I wanted to. So I booked tickets. I figured out how I was going to get there. I found a room and I flew halfway across the world to Grand Cayman for my big shot trying to land a new job. Here's the thing, though. I'd attended two engaged summits before that one in November of 2014, but I still didn't really know anyone. So on the first night when I got to the hotel, I went down to the main bar at the Ritz-Carlton where I'd be staying. I ordered a bottle of wine on the company credit card. Thanks, Brent. And even though it was me and only me, I decided to get several glasses. I was going to invite the first person or people that I met. I was going to ask them to sit down and join me for a glass of wine. Now, that person who happened to walk by and I made that offer to was a photographer from Dallas. And she was meeting a bunch of friends in the bar before they were all going to go out to dinner with everybody. So I thought, perfect, all sorts of new people to meet. Now, we went out that night, and I kid you not, there was like three carloads, 20, 25 people. All but three or four of them were from Dallas. And we went out to two different restaurants because we couldn't fit into one. And at the end of the night, we had such an amazing time that we all agreed to meet up at the beats the next morning to start the day with mimosas and Bloody Marys. Because, you know, that's what you do when you meet new friends and you're at a really cool work conference on one of the greatest stretches of sand in the entire world. So the next day, after a few hours of day drinking and swimming in the turquoise waters of Seven Mile Beach, one of the guys asked if I wanted to go to lunch. And I said, yeah, sure, let's do it. And two others said yes as well. One of them was Katie Taylor. Five minutes into the lunch with the four of us, I had physically turned my chair to face Katie, who was sitting directly next to me. I shut out the entire world except for this incredible woman who was right there. Before I go on with the rest of the story and how you can learn things to make your business more successful, because I'm going to get there, I will say that I did end up getting that job I was looking for. Katie, it turned out, was super tight with Todd Fiscus, who owned one of the biggest design decor and floral companies in the South. He was looking for a number two, and Katie introduced us on the beach that week. Seven weeks later, I showed up in Dallas with two suitcases and a carry-on, ready to run his companies for two years. That's a different story, different podcast. So let's get back to me and Katie planning our wedding. There we were, looking to do a destination celebration. We'd found a great place in Costa Rica to get married. Seaside beach town called Las Catalinas on the Guanacaste Peninsula. It was really similar to the resort that I worked at. It was one of those new urban master plan communities. It was a resort and a village and a community all together. We had found it on vacation when we were there in Costa Rica for my 40th, and we both fell in love with it right away. So we threw down a deposit on the venue, set a date for a year later. 
Now, as we started planning the wedding week in Costa Rica, though, things got really crazy really fast. We had a bunch of obstacles that we ran into. First and most importantly was a guest list. It was so tough. Katie had a ton of friends. You know, those stereotypical weddings that you hear about in in Texas where, you know, it's Tri-County and 400 people are invited. That's the kind of thing that we would have to do if we got married locally. But even so, doing it as a destination, Katie had a ton of friends and I got a big family. And so we didn't know how to trim the guest list to some kind of reasonable amount. Another thing that was a real challenge for us was picking the vendors. It was super political. We had lots of clients, or I did at the time, who wanted to help. And we also had industry friends. Katie was super connected in Dallas. And we had all of our engaged friends that loved our love story and wanted to be a part of it. And we found it really hard to make a decision without offending anybody when we were trying to figure out how to get the guest list. A third thing that we ran into was just a sheer amount of time to plan Because it was going to be a huge time suck, as we all know, planning weddings are. But we were in the midst of packing up our lives and our house in Dallas to move to San Juan Island. We had to move across the country. We literally filled 80% of a 53-foot trailer. We had so much stuff, and we were just trying to figure out a way to make it happen. And, of course, the last thing was it was going to cost a bunch of money. And we were paying for it ourselves. It was hard to spend that money on a week for all of our family and friends and us in Costa Rica when we were trying to figure out the next 10 years of our lives in a new home on San Juan Island. In short, it was going to be super expensive, it was going to be a lot of work, and it was going to be very, very stressful. Basically, it was going to be hard. Too hard. So we did what any sane people would do. We eloped. (laughs) And it was actually more of a micro-wedding, but there wasn't really a name for micro-weddings back then. It was just a big elopement. We called our friends and family to let them know. I think pretty much everybody was relieved that they didn't need to go to Costa Rica. We got the deposit back from the venue. We're returning with our team, by the way, to that same destination for our annual company retreat this fall. Katie and I are super excited. And we made plans to get married in front of a spectacular beach house on the Oregon coast with our kids, my childhood best friend and his wife, and Julian Lever with his boyfriend, Francisco, who married us on a sunny day when the temperatures reached a scorching 63 degrees, which for anybody who has ever been to the Oregon coast knows, especially in November, that's really hot. And it's really cool because we got married four years to the exact day that Katie and I met in Grand Cayman. Now, when I was jotting down notes for the outline of today's podcast on friction and how you're making it harder than it needs to be for people to buy from you, I wanted to tell you a story about how friction and things being hard impacts the wedding planning that your couples go through. You got a little history on how Katie and I met because it's a fun story and I I like to use this podcast as a way for our audience to get to know us better. But the main business takeaway is how hard it felt to plan our wedding. So hard that we actually decided against doing a traditional wedding and made it a micro wedding. And we're in the wedding industry. We are experts at planning. We are experts at hosting parties. We had both already been married, so we knew what we were doing. And we had a whole team of frienders who were there to help us. Imagine what it's like for a couple that's never done this before, who doesn't have much help, nor the time to commit to learning how to plan it well. Even if you have a planner, it's still super stressful to do your share of the work to plan your own wedding. I'd received an inquiry a couple months ago from a photographer who was not filling her calendar. It had been a challenge to get yeses since she raised her rates, and she wanted to know if maybe she was in a dead zone with her new prices. Now, it's common for me to hear this kind of challenge. I have success, I book out my calendar, I feel overworked. Or maybe I'm tired of working with these flawed couples instead of ideal clients. And so I raise rates to weed out the pain in the ass clients, the PETA clients, and the budget-oriented couples. First off, I don't believe in dead zones when it comes to pricing. 
You'll find pricing all over the place in every market. The key is to find out what your comp set is charging and make sure you're not unreasonably high or wildly low compared to them. More importantly though, it's never about the price. It's always about one of three things or maybe more than one of these three things. Sales skills, sales messaging, and sales process. Okay, sales skills, sales messaging, sales process. Something is going on with one of these or more of one of these things. So the first reason sales skills is something that you have to get better at. And it's a lot faster and more successful if you get a coach for it. If you've never had proper sales training, get it. And make sure you use someone like me who's an expert at A, selling, and B, showing others how to do it with your business, not just their own. Now, the second reason that I often see things go south with sales is sales messaging. And this is something that you should have an expert brand strategist do for you. You would not suggest to a couple that they have their brother plan the wedding or sister photograph it or friend design the invitation on Canva, right? So why would you try to get into the head of your ideal client's psychological triggers and then craft messages that will get into their head without knowing exactly what you're doing? Now, we do this for our copywriting and sales coaching clients because we have background on it. We have training on it. We have experience with it. And we've worked on this with hundreds of clients. When it's done right and done well, it can be a real game changer to have the right sales messaging. But the third reason, the sales process, this is the simplest to fix and the fastest to return good results. Why? Because I usually find a few things here or there that can be tweaked or eliminated and that'll make it much easier for potential clients to buy from you. It does not have to be a lot that you need to change. So this photographer who had inquired, she had heard from a number of others that it was important to make it difficult to buy her services. And I've heard this before. This is nothing new, especially if you're in the premium market moving into luxury. A lot of the advice out there is make it hard. She had been told that if she should play hard to get, she could raise her rates and it would be more appealing. So here are some of the things that I've seen, not just from her, but from other people. Here are some difficulties that people put in place intentionally or unintentionally. One, create a long contact form with a lot of form fields. Number two, in those contact forms, ask open form questions or request loads of personal information up front in the contact form. Three, declare your high prices early and often on the website, on your contact page, and in your inquiry response. Four, tell them that you only take a limited number of weddings on all of your marketing and sales material. Number five, mention that you don't hold dates without a contract or a deposit. Number six, tell the person who's inquiring right away that they'll have to get on a call if they want to get more information. Number seven, make that call long, 45, 60 minutes. Number eight, share pricing right away and make sure they understand your minimums. Number nine, give them lots of information to sort through and then force them to read it before making the next step. Number 10, Turn the discovery call into a sales call where you're putting the focus on pitching your services rather than collecting and connecting information with the other person. Number 11, long contracts filled with tons of legalese that protects you and puts the other person at risk. Number 12, make the deposit a big amount, like 40, 50% or more of the full payment. Number 13, Make it so that you don't collect payments with credit cards or that if you do, you charge an extra fee on top of the services. And another thing, the last one, 14, is you require them to work with a planner. Venues often do this, and I'm starting to see photographers do this more and more. 
So the photographer that inquired with me, she was doing some of these, but these other ones I see over and over and over again in the daily and weekly work that I do with clients. And like I said, some are done intentionally, others are done without knowing. And many are done by wedding pros turned educators or mentors who are showing newer, less successful business owners what they do now, and they're recommending that these newbies do it too. Make them work for it, and they'll be willing to pay more. It's an approach that works for a very, very small percentage of the wedding industry. Even in the luxury space, it's not always the best strategy. So I want to unpack a couple of things here. First, the person seeking advice and guidance is usually in absolutely no position to do what the wildly successful wedding pro is suggesting because they don't have either A, the demand needed to turn people away when they inquire, or B, the limited supply of dates available because the person offering advice seeks to only do a handful of events a year, while the person who's trying to learn how to book more wants to fill up 20 or more calendar dates. Now, I've used this strategy of making it harder to book with clients who receive 100, 200, 300, maybe even more inquiries each year. Yes, there are people who do that. And they only want six to eight events a year. Now, sometimes they do more than six to eight, but the turndown rate for the number of inquiries can be 90% or more. Nine or 10 out of 10 are getting turned away. Now, if you only want to book 10% or less of your inquiries, by all means, Make it hard to book people. And yes, if you can make it more difficult to get your product or service, you might get people to desire your services more. How come? Something called scarcity. I've talked about this briefly in episode 24 because it's a big principle of influence. Something that's more rare is oftentimes more desirable. Something that's more rare is often going to create higher willingness to pay amongst your buyers. And ultimately, exclusivity can lead to affluent buyers finding your business appealing. Let's look at diamonds. Diamonds are largely a manufactured marketing tactic to create desire and higher prices through scarcity. There's a consortium that controls the supply to keep rates sometimes artificially high and is now combating lab-grown diamonds that are perfect but easy to get. The only difference between the lab-grown and the mined diamonds is that one is harder to get than the other, and so you have to pay more for it. But this scarcity tactic can also backfire. Here's one of my favorite quotes from Yogi Berra. He said, that place is so popular, nobody goes there anymore. Talking about a restaurant. The reservations are hard to get, and so people don't even try. They just give up because they don't think they can get in. Now, if a vendor has only one or two dates available, what are the chances of yours being available? And will you be able to afford it because it's so rare? These are the kinds of questions that your potential buyers are thinking as they hear that scarcity approach. So instead of making it hard, I'm going to suggest some tactics that you can do to reduce the friction, to get people in the door without making it so difficult that they can't make easy progress. Number one, make it easy for people to fill out your contact form. Number two, put only your starting app price on your services page. Three, make it simple for people to book a call with an online scheduling link. Number four, keep the discovery call to 20 to 30 minutes. Number five, drip out information as needed over the course of the entire buyer's journey. Number six, keep initial deposits to 25% or less. Number seven, reduce the length of your contract and make it easier to read without having to hire an attorney to interpret it for you. And finally, number eight, accept credit cards and embed the fees into the full price. In general, 
Use these three strategies. Make the steps forward small and easy to approach. Guide them along the way and reduce friction at every opportunity. Now, if you are getting inundated with unqualified inquiries, don't start by making the sales process harder. Start with a better sales process. Now, this begins on your website. Hire brand strategists to tell you what motivates your ideal clients deep down and how you can create a communication strategy to appeal to those couples. Then get a conversion copywriter to hook your perfect clients and move them from the homepage to your inbox. Now, you can also improve your sales skills. You can hire a coach who knows the wedding industry and can train you in ways that don't require you to clone yourself or follow their exact process. Sales is a learned skill, and you need to know the principles to get better for your business, with your clients, in your market, at this time in your career. Because the best way to fill a calendar with ideal clients at high prices is not by making it harder, it's by building value in the mind of your buyer. Strategies based on scarcity will only get you so far. And as the photographer who inquired with us found out, it may make it so hard that you can't get going at all. If you want to win business over the long term, learn to communicate what your clients need most from you and then make it easy, not difficult, to get that from you. Boom. That's it for this episode on Own Your Business. If you've heard me on a stage or a workshop or someone else's podcast, you know I have a hard time keeping it short but I know you're busy. So thanks for spending time with me today. You have a ton of options for guides when it comes to getting you to where you want to go. I hope you found someone you can continue to trust. If you have a friend who could use practical strategies to own their business, please share this episode with them. If you can't think of anyone in particular, we'd settle for a quick review on whatever podcast platform you listen through. 